So last week, we began this series with a little bit of background looking at Exodus chapter 13, where Moses goes to Pharaoh, calls him to deliver the Israelites from Egypt. Pharaoh resists. There's 10 plagues. Eventually, Pharaoh relents, and Moses brings the people out. And I really, I don't want to go into a lot of detail. You can watch last week's, but there were really two points. And the first one is this. Sometimes that which was unusual becomes usual. Sometimes that which was abnormal becomes normal in our lives. When the Israelites first went into slavery, it was abnormal. But over 400 years, over 10 generations, slavery had become normal. And now freedom is actually abnormal. And for us, five months ago, lockdown was abnormal but over these months it's become normal so that freedom now feels abnormal and my point is simply this that we all move at different paces and we're all in different places but the reality is that we need to move forward we cannot stay where we were that we need to take one step after another uh, into freedom and into what God has ahead for us. And so we cannot allow something that is abnormal to become normal in our lives. We have got to push forward. And the second thing I said was this. Sometimes God takes us the long way around. Sometimes God takes us the long way around. We read that at the end of Numbers 13. It says, when they came up, They didn't take the shortest route towards the promised land because God knew that there were obstacles there. There was an enemy there and that the people weren't ready to fight it. But it also says that they were dressed for battle. So they thought they were ready, but God knew they weren't ready. So he took them the long way around. And sometimes in our own lives, we get frustrated and confused because we can see the most direct, straight route to what we think God has called us to, but it doesn't seem to be happening. Nothing seems to be shifting. We're tired of waiting and God is taking forever. And we're like, God, have you forgotten about me? And God is taking us the long way around because God has something to do in us before he does something through us. That God always takes us through a period of development, of process, of growth, and of change. So that when we arrive at the destination, we're ready. You see, they would have to fight battles when they got to Canaan. And they would have to be ready because they were battles that they would have to win. There was more at stake. But they weren't ready now, so God took them the long way around. And like the original Karate Kid, this is the illustration I always use. You remember Mr. Miyagi, wax on, wax off, paint the fence, and Daniel had no idea. Sometimes we don't understand why God is, is putting us through some things. But it's only as we look back later that we realize he was training us and preparing us all along. Sometimes God takes us the long way round. And it's really a test of trust. And we saw that trust is especially important When you're in transition. In fact, that's what the whole point of transition sometimes is. To teach us trust. To teach us to trust God. Because transition, by its very nature, is a place where we need to trust. Transition is an uncertain place. It's an unpredictable place. It's an unfamiliar place. And it's an uncomfortable place. We have left something, someone, somewhere behind. And we know that there's something someone out there for us but right now we're in between 
we're in limbo. We're in that place of uncertainty where we're not sure what lies ahead. The illustration I sometimes use is, if you've ever been going to a fancy dress party and you take public transport, you dress up at home, you feel fine at home, and when you get to the party, you'll fit in. But in the in-between place, you feel ridiculous for what you're wearing. Sometimes transition feels like that. You felt fine back there, and you know you'll feel fine when you reach your destination. But in the in-between place, you're just not quite sure if you're dressed appropriately. You're not quite sure how you fit in. That's what transition is. And that's why transition is a place where we learn how to trust. Transition is where we learn to trust in the tight spaces, in the turbulent places, and in the transition phases that we go through. And so what I want to do today, I, I don't, I'm a very verse-by-verse preacher, and that's the way I, I prefer to preach. But as I began to prepare this week, I really felt like I was to share some of our own story. Some of you have heard parts of this before. Some of you have maybe read parts of this in my book. But I really felt I was to just share some of our own story about how our family went through a significant transition in the last five years. And just some of the lessons that God taught me and taught us through that. In 2016... We had been living in Dublin, inner city Dublin, for five years. We had moved there in 2011. We'd been married for about a year at that stage. And we moved to Dublin to take on a church that had been going through a very difficult time. It was about to close. It was down to 60 or 70 faithful, wonderful people, but it was struggling. And we moved there. Elijah was born within the first year there. And we poured our hearts and our souls and our lives into that place. And we saw God do incredible things there. We saw, I think, probably around 200 people come to faith in Christ over those five years. We saw healings. We saw deliverance. We saw healings in the church and on the street. We saw lives transformed. We saw God move so powerfully and it was incredible and we made so many wonderful friends but by the end of five years it had taken its toll on us we were absolutely exhausted spiritually physically and emotionally there had been difficult times there had been tough times there had been spiritual opposition there had been challenges health challenges in the family and we were just spent We were due to take a sabbatical at the end of our five years and take four months of sabbatical. And then the the intention was that at the end of that, we would come back and sign a new contract for another three years. But over the months, and perhaps even the year or two leading up to that, God had begun to to shift something within us. There had grown to be a little bit of an uncertainty and a discontentment, which was quite surprising because quite honestly, we had thought we might in Dublin forever but God began to shift something within us he began to stir something within us and we began to sense that that maybe that our time in Dublin was coming to an end and sometimes that happens sometimes you begin to sense something before you see it there's almost like a, a disconnect starts happening and while you're still pouring your heart and soul into it while you're still doing all the things that you used to do Mentally and emotionally, you're starting to disconnect. I I see it in jobs where the person's still showing up every day and they're still doing their job, but you can tell that their heart is in doing something somewhere else. 
I see it in relationships. I see it even in marriages where the husband and wife are going through the motions, but really there is a disconnect. They're doing their duties as a husband and wife, but there's no real passion behind them. I see it even in church where people show up week after week, but there's no real engagement with the Lord or with his people. And and we had reached that place towards the end of five years where we were still giving it our all, but our hearts were disconnected because we knew that there was a good chance we weren't going to be there a long time. And I often say you don't paint the hotel room. You don't decorate the hotel room. You don't put a huge amount of investment into somewhere that you don't think you're going to be permanently. And so our, my prayer and a lot of our conversations at that time revolved around, I wonder what's next. And you'll find that if, in transition that you'll start to think about what's next. When you're completely happy and satisfied where you are, you don't think about the alternative. When you're really happy in your job, you don't go to Job Finder every week. When you're really happy in your, in your relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you don't look at anyone else. At least you shouldn't. But when you start to think about the alternatives... It shows that there's a dissatisfaction and maybe a sense of, of change coming in. And that, our, our conversations for a while began to revolve around what's next, what's the Lord doing, where's he leading us, what's, what's the next door he's opening. And so in 2016, somewhere probably around March 2016, I found myself in the early hours of the morning, I'd just gone through a process where the Lord was waking me up two or three times a week at around 4.30, and I was going into my study, and I was praying. And I found myself in my study at about 4.30 in the morning, praying this, God, will you please open a door for us? I know you're moving us on from here, and would you please open a door for us? And in that moment, I had a vision. And I know that sounds very hyper-spiritual and supernatural and dramatic. I, can I say to you, I've been a, a Christian for 30 years and I've probably had two or three visions in my entire life, okay? So it's not like I'm one of those people who has 42 visions before my ready break every morning. That is not the case. But as I'm praying, it's almost as if I'm watching something on a screen in front of me. I have what, what they call an open vision. It's as if I'm standing and I'm watching something on a screen. And this is what I see. It was so incredibly vivid. I was in a prison cell. And I know that doesn't sound particularly nice for the situation I was in. But I, I, I began to feel contained where we were a little bit. And so I was in a prison cell. And the warder came up and he said, Craig, you're released from here. And the prison door swung open and I began to follow him down the corridor, and it was so vivid. And as I'm walking down the corridor towards freedom, I have one question in my mind that is this. Will there be anybody waiting on the outside? Will there be anybody waiting on the other side? That's the question that's going through my mind. And I'm walking down the steel steps, and all the prisoners are at the, at the, at the doors watching me leave. And the prison door swings open, and I've got one thought, will there be anybody waiting for me on the outside? And I remember in the vision there was this huge steel gate. And I actually had been doing prison ministry in Dublin, so I was familiar with what all of this looked like. There was this huge steel gate, and it began to slide very slowly across. And it's sliding, I'm peering through, trying to see, will there be anybody waiting for me? On the other side. 
and as the gate slides across, there was this huge car. Kind of in the vision, it kind of looked like a station wagon, which some of you know is my least favorite car. But there was this huge car full of waving, smiling faces, and there was just this huge sense of relief that there would be somebody waiting on the other side. And as soon as I saw that, I snapped out of my vision, and I'm back on my knees in my study again. And immediately I knew it was God because I don't have a lot of visions. And I began to think, well, what does that mean? Because sometimes, you see, when we get a picture or a word from God, that's called the revelation, but then we need to interpret it and apply it. So what did that mean? Well, I had been saying to God, what had my prayer been? Will you open a door for us? What door opened in the vision? It was a prison cell door. But it wasn't a door leading somewhere. It was a door releasing me from somewhere. And what I felt was God saying this, Craig, I am releasing you from this assignment that I have called you to in Dublin. I am releasing you from that. And you need to keep walking into freedom. But I'm not telling you what's at the other side. I'm not opening the other door yet. You have to keep walking and trusting that when you get to the other side, I will have people waiting for you. I find that hard. As a husband and father, I like to be able to provide for my family. I'm not someone who takes stupid decisions and risky decisions just for the sake of being reckless. And so I I, I really, I struggled with that. However, it began to be really clear that God was calling us to move on. And over the next week, through Various circumstances, much prayer, and a lot of conversations with people, especially Becky. It became incredibly clear to us that the time had come for us to move on. That instead of going on sabbatical, uh, which we were going to do anyway, we were to leave before the sabbatical. And so within a week of that vision, Becky resigned from her job as a speech therapist. I resigned from my job as the pastor of the church. And within a month, we piled all our belongings into a lorry and we drove up in my little one series, jammed to the roof with belongings with our little three-year-old son Elijah in the back, beginning our sabbatical, which was going to last four months, but with absolutely no idea what was waiting on the other side. But God had told us we had to keep on moving. We just had to keep on moving. And if anything, that has been the theme and what I'm trying to get across over these weeks as we look at this series, Waymaker. In the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of challenging situations, in the midst of turbulence and even fear, The one thing I believe God is calling us to do is to keep on moving, to keep on walking forward, not to stop and not to get stuck. And this began our journey of learning to trust God in the uncertainty and the uncomfortable uh, nature of transition. Let me read from Exodus. We're only going to look at a few verses today. Exodus 14 So this is following on, we finished Exodus 13 last week, Exodus 14, 5 and 6. When the king of Egypt, thus Pharaoh, was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. 
So Pharaoh had let the people go, but after a day or two, he has a change of heart. He's thinking about it and he begins to think to himself, I have just let hundreds and thousands of slaves go free. Free labor. Who is going to build all my buildings and monuments now? Because that's what Egypt were famous for. Remember the pyramids and all the structures. Who is going to build them now? And I'm sure the other people in the community were saying, we're not doing it for you. And so Pharaoh has this change of heart. And then he he decides he has to get them back. And you know, there's something about power. That when you give people power over your life, they're very reluctant to give it up. When you give people power over your decisions and over your life, they may let you go free for a little while, but there's something about the corruptive nature of power that that is very hard to relinquish. When you give people power over your life, over your decisions, over all that you do, they may let you go free for a little while, but very soon they want to get that power back. You can apply that in however you want. But be very careful about how much power you give people over your daily life anyway. Pharaoh gathers the most powerful army in the world at the time, using the most advanced military technology there was at the time. And that was the chariots. The chariots that Egypt had were the most advanced military technology. And look at what we read. They start to pursue the Hebrews. Look at verses 8 and 9. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near, near opposite Baal Zephon. So look at, look at verse 8. Look at verse 8 where it says, the Israelites were marching out boldly. They had a swagger about them. They had a confidence about them. They had authority about them. They had been liberated from slavery. But not only that, earlier in chapter 13, we also read this, that they had uh, plundered the Egyptians. They had taken their articles of silver and gold and jewelry. They had plundered the Egyptians. These slaves who hadn't owned anything for 400 years are now loaded with gold and wealth. And so they've got a bit of a swagger about them. They're marching out boldly. But all of that is about to change. Look at verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. Within the space of two verses, they go from being bold to being terrified. Why? Because they look up and they see the enemy. They see the Egyptians coming after them. They hear the sound of hoofbeats behind them. Clickety-clop, 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 clickety-clop. They hear the sound of the horses and the chariots coming behind them. And that sound instills terror into them. It instills fear into them. It reminds them of all that they've just left behind. It pours foreboding into them. It absolutely scares them so much. All of the trauma that they have left behind suddenly comes flooding back and they have forgotten what God has done for them. You see, they have forgotten that the same Egyptians 
that are now behind them are the same Egyptians that God poured ten plagues onto to release them. They, in just a matter of a few days, have forgotten that the God who delivered them is the God who is still with them. How do they know he's with them? There's a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire before them. But they are a people who have quickly forgotten that the same God who released them from the grip of Pharaoh is the same God who is with them them now. It says they lifted their eyes and saw the Egyptians. They lifted their eyes just enough to see the enemy, but they didn't lift their eyes high enough to see their God. You know, some Christians are obsessed with the enemy. They never stop talking about the enemy. I wish they would just lift their eyes a little bit higher and focus on the God who defeats the enemy every single time. You see, the enemy doesn't want you to be free. The mission of the enemy is never to lead you into freedom. He promises freedom. He promises fulfillment. He promises excitement. He promises all these things as he dangles them and dazzles you with them. But he wants ultimately always to lead you into bondage and captivity and oppression and slavery. His goal is always to keep you bound up in stuff. And that's why it's so hard to break free from some habits and some addictions and some thought patterns and some compulsions and some behavioral patterns. You get a little bit of freedom. You start walking in freedom for a day or two and it feels great and you're full of joy and you're full of passion and you're full of enthusiasm and it feels wonderful to be free. I'm free. Hallelujah. And then you hear the hoofbeats coming behind you. Clickety-clop, clickety-clop. And that temptation begins to creep up on you. And that fear begins to creep up on you. And that thing from the past begins to creep up on you. And that person from your past begins to creep up on you. And suddenly, all the fear that you thought you'd left behind back there, suddenly is right with you. And you feel completely overwhelmed with it again. Suddenly, all of the things that God has done, all of the power he has shown, seem like nothing compared to the power of that thing that is creeping up on you. The enemy does not want you to be free. And so the people are terrified by what they see and they're terrified by what they're hearing. And you need to know this. Fear has a language. Fear has a language. Fear has a voice. Fear speaks to us. Fear whispers in your ear. What does it say? Do you know what fear primarily whispers in your ear? What if? Question mark. What if? What if this doesn't work out? What if this fails? What if you get sick? What if you are left all alone? What if they leave you? What if they hurt you? What if they treat you just like that last person treated you? What if? What if? Fear constantly whispers lies. Fear constantly whispers negativity. Fear never wants to release you into the expansive and enlarged future that God has for you. Fear always tries to contain and constrict you and to hold you back from what God has called you to. Fear never gives you a positive outcome. Fear always gives you the worst possible outcome. Fear always tells you that you're not enough. You don't have enough. You're not good enough. You're not going to be enough. You're not going to make through this. Make it through this. That if you leave this 
bad relationship that you'll not be able to survive on your own, that you're going to fail, that everybody's going to laugh at you, that it's all going to go wrong, that, that, that you'll never be free from that addiction. That's what the enemy whispers. That's what fear whispers. It always reminds you of your inadequacy and your lack and your deficiency rather than the abundance that God has given you and the Christ who is supreme within you. It always points to what you don't have rather than who you are and what you do have. And it tells you you may as well just give up and go back there now because it's never going to work. Fear speaks negativity and doubt. Fear speaks insecurity and inadequacy. And the fear causes us to want to retreat and regress and press back to, to slavery, which we hated, but at least there was certainty there. At least we knew what to expect there. It's interesting that God's people had enough faith to leave Egypt, but not enough faith to keep moving through the opposition. They had enough faith to leave slavery, but they didn't have enough faith to face the obstacle and the opposition and the enemy before them. And I think that's a picture of us sometimes. You know, sometimes I think we try to portray the Christian life as all faith or all fear. And really, sometimes they they cohabit, don't they, within us? That we have faith, but we also have fear. I think that's become very obvious over the last six months. That some of us have great faith. But there's also fear. We have great faith in God in some areas. But when it comes to some other areas, we're just really afraid. That, that, that there's things that I have no concern about doing. That I have complete confidence in God. And there's other places where I just am a little more apprehensive and a little bit more insecure. And the Lord wants us to remember that the same God who brought us out will bring us in. The same God who saved us will continue to save us. The same God who freed you is the same God who will keep you. That was a lesson we had to learn. That the same God who had brought us out of Dublin, out of that place where our time was up, was the same God who at the end of our sabbatical was still with us as we came to a place of great uncertainty and discomfort and insecurity. We spent the first month of our sabbatical in the North Coast. And then we went to California for two months to suffer for the gospel in Southern California. I know, somebody has to do it. And, you know, I really thought by the end of that first three months, we had a four-month sabbatical, so by the end of the three months, I really was convinced that the Lord would have opened the door. And by the end of three months, there was absolutely nothing opening up. And I had faith, but I also began to have a little bit of fear. I had faith because God had spoken to me. I had that vision. He had confirmed it. But I also began to get a little bit nervous. What were we to do? We had no house. Elijah was starting preschool. We didn't know where to start. We had nothing. We didn't know what to do. And so basically, here's what we did. (laughs) I went on to Gumtree when I was in California and looked at house rentals in Port Stewart. Because my theory was this. If you're going to be unemployed, Port Stewart's as nice a place to walk the streets as anywhere else. And we contacted a lady in Port Stewart and she agreed to rent us her little house for six months. 
And so we moved to Port Stewart and we had a month of sabbatical left. And as that month went on, I began to get more and more nervous. There were bills to pay. There was rent to pay. There was food to put on the table. There was, all sort, there was a car to run. And our resources were rapidly getting depleted. I was trying to contact my friend who runs a big food factory up there, seeing if there was a job on the assembly line. I wasn't hearing back from him, and I was getting more and more nervous. And I got down to the last week of my sabbatical, and my faith level was decreasing, and my fear level was increasing. I have to be honest. I don't do well when I'm not busy. I I need to work. I need to be productive. And so I began to really get quite stressed. And I'm like, God, I know you gave me a vision. I know you spoke to me. You said there would be somebody waiting on the other side. I'm now at the other side and I'm looking and I don't see anyone there. And one morning, a Tuesday morning on the last week of our sabbatical, I decided to switch on my old phone, my my southern phone that I'd had off all summer because we now had moved up north. I decided for some reason just to switch it on just to see it, anybody would be in contact. And as soon as I switched it on, a message came through. And it was from Alan Scott, who was the pastor at that time of the Causeway Coast Vineyard. And he had just sent it the day before on the Monday. And I said, Craig, do you want to meet for a coffee sometime? So I met Alan on the Thursday in Three Kings in Port Stewart. And I sat across from him and Alan said, Craig, do you want to come on board and uh, work in the vineyard? And I said, well, doing what? And he said, well, obviously some sort of teaching pastor role, maybe some writing. But he said this, why don't you write a job description? And sure, we'll figure that out. And I said, okay, I, I can do that. And I said, what about, and then he said, what about Becky? Does she want to come on staff? And I said, well, doing what? He said, get Becky to write a job description and we'll figure it out. He said, do you want to be full time? I said, oh, probably about two thirds and Becky doing a third of a job just with Elijah at preschool and stuff. And he said, no problem. And then I was really excited, but then I began to go, I wonder, is this a volunteer role? Because at that stage, literally, people would have paid to work in the vineyard. And so I began to get a little nervous. I have to be, and I, I said, Alan, I just need to ask, is there, like, is there enough, is there funding for this? Is, there, like, is this a paid job? And here's what Alan said to me. He said, Craig, three or four months ago before you went to America, we were having a, a trustees meeting, a director's meeting here in the vineyard. And for some reason, I don't know why, but the Lord prompted me in that meeting to say this. Can we set aside a full-time salary so that if Craig and Becky Cooney ever move to the North Coast, we can take them on staff without having to have another meeting? So he said, yes, Craig, there's funding. The funding was put in place before you even went to California. The Lord had told me there'd be somebody waiting on the other side. And there were, in the wonderful smiling faces of the people of Causeway Coast Vineyard, where we spent a wonderful year of our lives before the Lord moved us down here to Hope, which is a whole other story in itself, which some of you have heard. But I was stressing. Fear was creeping in. But here's what, what God was showing me. He said, I have it covered. He had it covered all along. Before we even left, God had it covered. I just didn't know it. I had to keep walking and trusting that there'd be somebody waiting on the other side. And that's my story and that's our story. But my story and our story can also be your story. 
that whatever you're waiting for, whatever God has promised, whatever word he has given you that you're clinging to, you might not see it in front of you right now. And you might have started this journey full of faith, but over time fear has crept in. And actually the fear level now is higher than the faith level. And you're beginning to get anxious and you're beginning to get worried and you're beginning to want to take things into your own hands. And instead of, if, if the door's not going to open, you're going to kick it open or you're going to go to another door. I would just encourage you, as I said last week, you know what it's all about? This whole thing is all about one step at a time. One foot in front of the other. One day at a time. Trust him today. Follow him today. Listen to him today. Love him today. Worship him today. Give him your all today. You don't need to know what the future holds. But know that today he is with you. Today he is for you. And he has gone ahead of you. And he knows exactly what you need as you go through this transition, this turbulence, this, this unusual and difficult time, whatever that is for you, the Lord is with you in this and he will bring you through it. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you that you're not a God of favorites. That actually as I preach your word, my testimony can be a prophecy. That the God who provided for us can provide for everyone listening to my voice. And so, God, wherever people are at right now, wherever they're feeling fearful and uncertain, wherever they're struggling to see a way through, thank you, God, that you're the way maker. And I pray, Lord, that even today you would give them a glimpse of the reality of how you're involved in their life, how you're making a way, how you're opening doors, how you're leading them, how you're guiding them. Just give them a little glimpse of how you're involved in the intimacy and intricacy of their lives. And for those who don't know Jesus, for those listening to my voice who have never received Jesus as Lord and Savior, the most important thing you can do right now is say yes to Jesus, to give your life to Christ. It won't be perfect. All your problems won't go away. But God will forgive your sins. He will be with you. And he will lead you forward. So would you simply pray this prayer with me? If you've never received Christ as your saviour, or maybe you once did, but you've, you've, you've drifted, you've wandered away. Maybe you're just going through the motions like I talked about earlier. Would you receive Christ as your Lord and saviour? Would you repent? That means turn around, change direction, change your mind, and come to him. Would you pray this little prayer with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus Christ to die for me. Thank you that he took my sin on the cross and rose again. Today I give my life to him. I surrender all that I am and all that I have. I choose to be a follower of Christ. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Thank you that I have been born again. Amen. If you have prayed that prayer, we would love to hear from you. So please do drop us a message on Facebook or contact us in some way.